beautiful spring Sunday. Um, just reminded every week that it's just such a joy to come together to worship the Lord together, and um, yeah, it's a it's a huge blessing. So, if you want to stand with me this morning? Uh, our call to worship is taken from Psalm 100, which we'll later sing actually, and this is. A great song that is calling all the earth to worship the Lord, to come before Him, to serve Him, and to know that He is good, His love endures forever, and that He is God. So I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me with the non-bold. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, and come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord... He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 17, we'll sing Psalm 100. So this is to the tune of the doxology. So just think of that. Yeah. 
confession of sin this morning. It's from Psalm 51, 1 through 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. If you would pray this prayer with me, please, the prayer of confession. Almighty Father, have mercy on us. We, like David, have sinned against you, and our sin has not only been against one another, but ultimately against you. Forgive us for the sake of Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, create in us a clean heart. Amen. You want to remain standing and turn to the handout in your bulletin. We're going to sing another song. Maybe you'll notice a theme this morning. Um, this is Psalm 1. It'll actually be our sermon text for this Sunday. And it's a great psalm, as we'll see hopefully today. It talks about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So uh, I'll play through it once just so you can get the tune and then sing along as you're able. <laughs>
continue in Psalm 51. I can't help but read this part and show my age. Keith Green's creating me a clean heart is just rocks my world. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys even know Keith Green or not, but I'll tell you what. It brings back memories. So 70s, here we come. So, uh, so Psalm 51, 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Sorry. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you undone. Thanking you, Father, for making us clean, for putting us back together, for making us whole, for making us holy through your Son, Jesus. Lord, continue your work in us and through us as we reach out to this area, to this town, this city. Maybe, may we be good ambassadors and representatives of who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would all say with me the Apostles' Creed today. We appreciate that. I believe in God, the Father's Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Psalm this morning. Um, we've recently completed our study of Romans chapter 8, which I hope was edifying for you all and as it was for me. And last week we had the privilege of um, Darren Caldwell speaking on the law and the gospel. So hopefully that was edifying. I know it was for me. It's such an important thing that we don't talk about enough. So it was great to 
hear him speak about the importance of the law, but its insufficiency to save us and how we need the gospel of Christ to do that. Um, so that was a huge blessing. And just sort of giving you the layout for the next couple weeks. We'll be in Psalm 1 this week, just sort of a one-off. Daryl will be preaching next week as our family and the Dunbars go to Bloomington to um, talk to Faith Lutheran. I'll be speaking there and just telling them about all that's going on, trying to encourage them in their encouragement of us, you know, so just a great thing. And then, Lord willing, we'll be starting a series through the Gospel of John, uh, which is a great gospel, talks about the incarnate work of Christ, and so if you want to, you could start reading that, start looking and studying on your own, and it's a great, great book of the Bible. So, but this morning we'll be in Psalm chapter 1. We'll be in Psalm chapter 1. So this is in the Old Testament, as most of you know. And most people break the Old Testament into three parts. We have the law, the first five books. We have the prophets and the writings, or sometimes even shorthand referred to as the Psalms. And so we find ourselves this morning in the book of Psalms, which is part of the writing section of the Old Testament. And the Psalms was the songbook for the people of Israel. This is where they went. These were the songs that they sung. That's why we sing them too, right? Because these are songs. <laughs> That's what Psalms means. And these would have been even some of the songs that Christ himself sang in the Gospels. It's even referenced at the Last Supper that the disciples with Christ sang Psalms. And so... When we're singing these songs, even though it's kind of hard and some of the languages may be antiquated, we're singing the songs that Christ himself sang. And we're singing infallible words, which is kind of cool to think about. Um, just something to think about there. But we're in the book of Psalms, and why many people love the book of Psalms is because of the wide range of emotion that it covers, right? Everything from sorrow to despair, rejoicing, thankfulness to lament and deep, dark depression. And the Psalms cover the whole gambit. I think it was Calvin that called it the autonomy of the soul, right? That it, it, it cuts through all of our emotions in life and gives us the right way to respond to God in those different areas of life that we find ourselves in. And so if we're not familiar with the book of Psalms, there's, we call it the book of Psalms, but it's really 150 Psalms broken up into five books. So if you look at your heading there, you might see book one. So there's five books in the book of Psalms. That's a little bit confusing, but it's just important to understand that this is not just a random collection of songs or psalms. This is a unified whole. And many theologians even see a progression throughout the psalms, that each book even has an overarching theme to those psalms, and that it kind of escalates as you go through the book. And at the entrance to the book of Psalms stand two pillars, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And I almost think of it like um, Stonehenge. If you can pick, picture Stonehenge, it's like a threshold, right? Stonehenge is this giant stone structure in England, and there's two stones usually with a lentil across the top. And as we enter through that threshold of the book of Psalms, there stands Psalms 1 and 2. And many agree that they are pointing to something. That Psalm 1 is what they would call a Torah psalm. It is about the law of God. 
It's a Torah psalm, a law psalm. And the second psalm is what they would call a messianic psalm that points forward to the Messiah. And it's interesting that as you look through the book of Psalms, you could do this later if you wanted to, this coupling of Torah and Messiah appear other places in the Psalms. So if you were to go to Psalm 18 and 19, you would see a Messianic Psalm and a Torah Psalm, a Psalm of the Law. You go to Psalm 118 and Psalm 119, again you would see a Messiah Psalm and a Torah Psalm. So it's sort of interesting. And I think in a lot of ways, it's confirming that this is not just a random selection of books that's randomly placed. It is specific. It's trying to communicate something. And so as we come to the book of Psalms, we see these pillars of Torah and Messiah, law and gospel, if we want to put it in those terms. And so we're going to be in Psalm 1 today, and hopefully we'll see, because it is a psalm of the law, it is a Torah psalm, that it is dividing that it's dividing. It's showing the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. It's showing the blessed man and the man that is cursed. And as we walk through Psalm 1, hopefully by the end, we'll not only see the relation of man to the law, but ultimately the promised work of Christ, the need for a Messiah, and the person and work of our Lord. So, if you want to follow along with me, we'll read the entire psalm. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at the passage. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for this time that we get to set aside each week to worship and to rest and to come together as a congregation, as a blood-bought people, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you for your word that is infallible, sufficient, and our only hope of being saved is found in your word and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that as we look at Psalm 1, that we would see clearly the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and that we would see our need for a Messiah, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are weak. We are incapable of doing this on our own. We need the power of your Spirit 
And so this morning we pray that we would be found not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. And by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would illuminate your word and strengthen us this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So if you've never read Psalm 1, pretty straightforward. We sang it this morning, right? The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. That will be our outline for this morning. Verses 1 through 3 will outline the way of the righteous. And verses 4 through 6, the way of the wicked. So we'll begin at the beginning with the way of the righteous in verses 1 through 3. And we see Psalm 1 begin with these great words. Blessed, sorry, <laughs> blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. We don't use that word blessed a lot in our language, but for some of us, if we're familiar with the Beatitudes, we're going, we're thinking of that, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those for that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word blessed is to be blessed, right? Blessing. We call this a beatitude. It is a blessing. It's similar to the word that we use for benediction, right? A benediction we do at the end of each service. Um, it's not a magic, <laughs> you know, um, spell I'm putting on you. It's a blessing, right? It's go in peace. Go in the gospel. Go in Christ. It's not a command to do something. It's a blessing. So we see that in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. It's a benediction. And it's also interesting that the word used here for man. So it says, blessed is the man. You might even have a footnote at the bottom of your um, copy of scripture that talks about this is the singular for the word man. So it's not a plural. It's not saying blessed are those. It's saying blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. The Hebrew is singular. And it might even have a note about this is portraying a representative example of a single person. And so this is kind of interesting. Why is it singular? Why is there only one person? Well, we can kind of think an example of this would be the person of Adam in the garden, right? We're told later in Romans 5 that he was a representative, that he was a federal head, that he represented all humanity in the garden. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So this man is a representative. It's the singular representing the whole. And then we see the blessed man is described in verses 1 through 3. And it's the blessed man is described both negatively and positively, meaning what the blessed man does and what he does not do, what he is and what he isn't. And so we see three things. First, negatively, right? What the blessed man does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners and does not sit in the seat of of scoffers. So we have this sort of triad here, describing three things. And notice the verbs that are used. Walk, stand, sit. That there's this sort of escalation that's happening, right? It's not just walking, it's standing in the way of sinners. Sitting. There's this almost growing intimacy that's progressing as this triad lays out. So the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners and does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So alliteration there. Sit in the seat of scoffers. So what's the summary of this? The righteous man avoids evil. 
the righteous man avoids evil. This doesn't mean that the righteous man doesn't, you know, walk around sinners or something like that. That's not what the psalmist is saying. But he does not listen to the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand and he avoids evil, evil doing. And this was, in a sense, the role of Adam in the garden. Going back to the garden again, right? What was Adam called to do? He was given this beautiful garden that the Lord God had planted in Eden. Not the baby. And Adam had a role. And what was that? To guard and keep the garden. He was to guard and keep the garden. So if evil came in, he was to crush the evil. He was to kick the evil out of the garden. No evil was allowed in the garden. This was the role of Adam. So Adam was supposed to be a righteous man. He was supposed to avoid evil. But we know that this didn't happen for very long, right? Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the serpent and thrust all humanity into sin and evil and darkness. And so, what is the psalmist saying here in Psalm 1? To not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, we see in other places like Proverbs 4.14 says that we should avoid the evil, that we should not walk in the way of the wicked, that this is what the blessed man is to do, not only in thought, but in deed, not only in our words, but in our actions, that the righteous are to avoid evil. So we see that laid out in verse 1. And then we see the contrast here. So we've seen what the blessed man is not, and now we see what the blessed man is or does. And we see that in verse 2 and 3. That two things, that he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on the law day and night. That he not only finds his delight in the law of the Lord, but the law is what he meditates on day and night. That this is the blessed man. That the way of the righteous is to love the law of God. That the righteous are not opposed to the law of God, right? That's the wicked. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the righteous love the law of God. They delight in it. They meditate on it day and night. And again, this is Adam's condition, right? Adam was placed in the garden. The law was not only written on all of our hearts, but on Adam's heart. The Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So, and this could even broadly mean just scripture itself, God's revealed word. We see that in places like Psalm 19, where this sort of broader language is used. And so, not only does the blessed man or the righteous one delight in the law and meditate on it, but we see this picture of the blessed man in verse 3. It says that he, interesting, he uses that singular again, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. That, this tree, it's very interesting. We're almost getting some garden imagery, if you will, right? This tree that's planted by a river. And this again, <laughs> not to be repetitive too much, but all these images are in Genesis 2. God plants a garden. He puts a tree in the middle of it. There's rivers flowing out of it. <laughs> I mean, all this imagery is sort of pouring into Psalm 1, that there's a tree, that there's fruit, that there's all these things, and the righteous man, the blessed man, is like a tree. That 
is planted by a stream. So even if there's drought, even if there's a storm, it always has life. It always has abundance. It's always yielding fruit. It's never withering or fading or failing. And he confirms this in verse 3 at the end. It says, in all that he does, he prospers. This is not um, the prosperity gospel, but this is the prospering of righteousness, right? That all he does prospers, meaning when he goes after righteousness, he prospers. This is the fruit of righteousness. And so we see this contrast. So we've seen the way of the righteous, the way of the godly, the way of the blessed man. And now we'll look at the way of the wicked in verses 4 through 6. It's very blunt in verse 4. The wicked are not so. There's no debate. There's no question. There's no getting around the bush. The psalmist is straightforward. He says, the wicked are not so. They're not like the blessed man. The wicked are different. But we see this plural here. So there's a switch from the blessed man. He is planted as a tree. Now we turn and we see the wicked, plural used here. It's very interesting. And so now we'll see the way of the wicked, that they are not so. They're not like a tree that's planted by the river, but they're like chaff. They're like chaff. So back in these times, they would harvest wheat. Part of that harvest was you would collect the grain, but the grain would have this stuff called chaff on the outside. If Aaron Momo was here, he could attest to this, that coffee beans are very similar. When you roast a coffee bean, there's chaff on the outside. So when you roast it, the chaff comes off. It's this airy, flaky stuff that you don't want. It's not the fruit. And so with wheat, what they would do is they would go up on a hill, and they would put the wheat in a pile, and so it would have wheat and chaff together, and they would take a winnowing fork, and they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and the fruit would fall to the ground. You do the same thing with a coffee bean. You roast it, and you have all this stuff together. You don't want to eat that. That's not the good part. And so you blow it away, or you let the wind do it. And so this is the sort of imagery that's coming up with the wicked, that they're not like the righteous. They are like chaff. They're blown away. They are... There's no root. There's no fruit. There's no substance. They're like chaff. They are blown away with the wind. And so we see the end of the wicked, right? That the wicked aren't so, they're blown away like the wind. And then in verse 5, we see the end of the wicked. That they will not stand in the judgment. That they will not stand in the judgment. That judgment is coming for the wicked. That if there is a law, there is a lawgiver. And if there's a lawgiver, then there's a judge of that law. Right? There's a big trial going on in our country right now. And if any of you have followed it, maybe you picked up on some of the dynamics, right? There's a law, there's a standard, and there's a judge over that law. And there's a standard that has to be met. And so we see that in this judgment, the wicked will not stand. They will not stand. They will be blown away. That even though in this life that the wicked might puff their chest out, they might think that they are something, we see that their end is to fall, that their end is destruction, that they will not stand before God, the judge of all. 
And we see this explained even, and even further in verse 5 where it says that the sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. That at the end there will be a separation, this great separation between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the sheep and the goats, between the wheat and the tares, right? Some of this um, gospel imagery should be coming to our head. Christ's words, some of the parables that he says. And so in verse 6 when he says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That there's no middle ground here. <laughs> there's no third way. There's the way of the righteous. There is the blessed man, and there is the way of the wicked, the cursed. And so this is a Torah psalm. This is what a Torah psalm is meant to do. It's meant to show this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, between the blessed and the cursed. And if we're honest, when we see a psalm like this, it's very easy for us to place ourselves in the first category. It's very easy for us to think, I'm the blessed man, you know, I'm the blessed man. I seek after righteousness. I meditate on God's law day and night. It's easy for us to place ourselves on the good side. As Darren talked about last week, the law of God does not require trying harder, but it requires perfection. And so when we put ourselves and we read ourselves into the psalm and we say, we are the blessed man, what we're doing is we're taking the law of God and we're putting it down so we can jump over it, <laughs> right? We take the law of God and we bring it down so we can do it. And what we've done is we've lowered God's standard of righteousness and justice, and we've made it so that we can hop over it. I mean, let's be honest. When was the last time you meditated on the law of God day and night? <laughs> I never have. <laughs> I never have. I can say that. I've never, all day and night, right? At one point, not stopping. Have I never stood in the seat of sinners or never stood in the way of scoffers, right? So this Torah song, even though it's doing the separation, too often we place ourselves in the psalm and we put ourselves on the good side. And this is to turn the Bible into sort of basic moral teaching, right? So if I was to say at the end of this sermon, you need to be more like the blessed man. You need to follow the law more. You need to do more. You need to be more righteous, that would be to turn Psalm 1 into, like Darren said last week, straight law. It would be to say, do this, and if you don't, well, tough. I guess you're the wicked one. So if we're honest, if we take Psalm 1 seriously, we are a lot more wicked than we like to admit. Maybe it's externally. Maybe we, you know, are in into drugs or into alcohol or whatever it is. Maybe it's more obvious and external and even the world could say that's sinful. Or maybe it's more internal. Maybe it's more hidden. And think about pride. <laughs> pride is very difficult to see. You can't see it on someone. You can't see someone wear pride. But and sometimes they don't always let it out. But sometimes it's, it's deep. It's dark. It's hidden. Maybe it's some other sin in your life that is dark and hidden and internal. And so the point of this psalm is not that we just place ourselves on the good side and say tough for everybody else or everybody that's worse than me. We're supposed to examine ourselves and look at the law and say we don't measure up. 
that I have not delighted in the law of God. I have not meditated on it day and night. And so we have to ask this hard question, who is the blessed man? <laughs> if it's not us, who is it? Who is the blessed man? Well, the answer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, right? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blessed man. He is the one who never stood in the way of sinners, that never sat in the seat of scoffers, right? He was even tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. And he said, no. To every treasure in the earth, he said, no. He passed the test where Adam had failed. He passed the test where Adam had failed. And he always delighted in the law of the Lord day and night. He meditated on it day and night. And he is like a tree that never withers, that never fails to bring forth fruit. In all he does, he prospers. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blessed man. He is the righteous one. He is the Messiah. And that's where we come to Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2 is this messianic psalm. And I won't go into all of it into detail, but Psalm 2 lays out this picture of the nations raging, the people plotting in vain. And it talks about this great Messiah that is going to come. And he's already been set on Zion, the holy hill. So it's this great messianic psalm pointing forward to the Messiah, saying there's going to be one coming that's going to put the nations under his feet and laugh at the plots of the people to try to destroy him. And then it says something very interesting. The very last verse, verse 12, it says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Listen to these words. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what began in Psalm 1 as the blessed man has ended in Psalm 2 as blessed are all who take refuge in him. That we are blessed, but it's only if we're found in Christ. That's how we're blessed. That's the way that we are found to be righteous. It's not in and of ourselves. It's not by what we do. It's by being taking refuge in the blessed man. So Psalm 1 and 2 paint this picture of the law of God, the perfect standard of God, the righteous and the wicked, the blessed man. And we're meant to, at the end of Psalm 1, say, who is the blessed man? And Psalm 2 gives us the answer, that it is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, and that we are only blessed when we find refuge in him. That what Adam failed to do in, in the garden, the incarnate Son of God will do. That what the Old Testament promised, this Messiah to come, the New Testament tells us that he has. <laughs> that he has taken on flesh. God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has taken on flesh. Fulfilled the law perfectly, never failing. Doing it for us and for our salvation. And then suffering the punishment that we deserve, the wicked. We're the wicked. <laughs> we put ourselves on the good side, we're not. We're the wicked. But he took the punishment that the wicked deserved. He stands in the place of sinners, not in the way of sinners, but in the place of sinners. He avoided evil at every point, 
And like I said, what began in Psalm 1 as the blessed man, the singular, the Lord Jesus Christ, by Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That that is our hope, that that is where our hope lies. It's in Christ. Theologians call this union with Christ. That when we're united to him, we receive all the saving benefits that he wants. That so often we like to look at ourselves, we like to look at our works, but it is about being found in Christ, in his person and in his work. And so this is Psalm 1, right? This is Psalm 1. And so I think as we step away this week, there's two things that we kind of take away, two things that should sort of change us. First, it should change how we see the book of Psalms. And hopefully it already has. <laughs> and not just the Psalms, but all of the Old Testament. That the Psalms are not this random collection of songs, and they're not even first and foremost about us. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, who he is and what he came to do. And not just the Psalms, but the entirety of the Old Testament. And if you want to turn with me, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. This is after his resurrection. And he's walking with some disciples. And they don't know who he is. And they're veiled from seeing who he is. And he's walking with them. And he begins to speak to them. And it says this in verse 44. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all point to the Christ to come. That Christ coming on the scene was not a new thing. That the Old Testament promised the work of Christ and that the New Testament declares that he has come. That he is the one of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 that is the blessed man and is the Messiah. And that this is what Christ confirms for us. That this is how we should read the scriptures. Not as focusing on us, not on focusing on Israel, not focusing on anything but the person and work of Christ. And even though it was shadowy and not as clear as it is to us, this is the truth of the scriptures. That we could go to places like Psalm 118, where it says the stone that the builders rejected. We see this quoted later on in the New Testament as pointing to Christ. We see in Psalm 110 that David says he has a son that's coming after him that's greater than him. Great David's greater son. That the Old Testament in whole is pointing to the work of Christ. So this changes how we see not only the Old Testament, but the book of Psalms. And this also, Psalm 1, should change how we see ourselves. That left to ourselves, we are the wicked. If we're found in and of ourselves, we are the wicked. Isaiah says that your deeds before me are as filthy rags. That we try to do good. We try to work we, we're like kids playing in the mud. <laughs> we try to make something beautiful, and it's just filthy before God, because he's holy and righteous and good, and his standard is perfect. But when we're found in Christ, as we talked about a couple weeks, our filthy garments are taken off, and we're clothed in the filthy garments, I'm sorry, in the righteous 
perfect, pure garments of Christ. And so we have a clear picture of ourselves in Psalm 1 that we are not the righteous one. We are not the blessed one. That we are too often, than we like to admit, like the wicked. But in the same sense, we are blessed in Christ. And only in Christ, right? We're only blessed in Christ. It's only because he is the blessed one that we find blessing, that we find hope, that we find any delight in the law of God. That we've been given the spirit that gives us a new heart, so we desire to do God's law. What does 1 John say? This is the love of God that you keep my commandments. And what's it say after that? His commandments aren't burdensome. <laughs> the law for the unbeliever is a burden. It says, do this, and the unbeliever can't. It says, do, and it can't be done. But for the believer, for the one that has been given a new heart, the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're a joy, they're a delight. It's not always easy, right? I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. It's not always easy to follow God's law, but it's a delight. And so we can read someone first as pointing to Christ, but then, in a sense, ourselves, right? We should meditate on God's law day and night. We should delight in it. We shouldn't abhor it. We shouldn't um, be against it. And even though we will face persecution in this life, for being Christians, for being believers, we see the end of the wicked is to perish. That we've either had people sin against us, maybe people have done horrible things to us. We can take comfort knowing that the Lord is righteous. The judge of all the earth will do right. That the wicked will perish, their way is destruction, and we can take joy and comfort in knowing that. So. This is Psalm 1. This is the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And hopefully we see that our hope is not found in and of ourselves, but in the blessed man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for Psalm 1, where we see this great divide. That this is what your law does. It divides. And it either says righteous or guilty. Holy or condemned. And in and of ourselves, we have no hope. But we thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but from Genesis to Revelation, throughout redemptive history, points to the work of Christ. The blessed man, the one who never failed, who fulfilled the law perfectly for us, so that we might be found in him having a righteousness not of ourselves, but of Christ. So that when we stand on that day of judgment, we need not fear. Why? Because we stand in Christ. Not of our works, but by His. Help us to trust in that this morning. It's difficult. We want to look to ourselves. We want to be found in our works. Help us, Lord to look to Christ, to be found in Him by faith alone, not by works of the law. We pray all these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen. So, this morning, I don't know how long I've gone, but as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to take a little bit of extra time to just explain. 
um, some more of what we do, right? Because I've tried to put forward a positive case for why we take the Lord's Supper the way we do, the frequency at which we take it, the manner in which we take it, the attitude that we should have. And I don't like to be negative, right? It's easy to say, well, we don't believe this, and we don't believe that, and we don't do this. But I think it's good sometimes to, to clarify, right? And that's necessary from time to time. So just to um, go that direction, right? So I think it's helpful to say sometimes what we don't believe is happening, right? Because there's bread and there's wine behind me, and we take it each week. And there are certain beliefs that are in error. One of these would be the Roman Catholic belief that they believe that the body and the blood of our Lord, or sorry, right, the other way around, the blood, the, the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. That they call it a, you know, it's an actual body and blood. And that's not what we're confessing when we come forward every week. Hopefully that hasn't been what, that's not been what you've been thinking. That... That not only, not only do we not see that in Scripture, but that leads to some wrong views of the table. It actually leads them to worship the elements because they think that they're Christ himself. So we're not doing that. We're not worshiping the bread and the wine. So we're not Roman Catholic. Hopefully you knew that. <laughs> and there's other views out there. And this is, I think this is the more common and typical view is what we would call the memorialist view. And this would be that the Lord's Supper is just a memory. That it's just a memory. And I say that, and I think a helpful way to think about it would be like a spiritual sticky note. It's the equivalent of that. That we're just coming forward and we're just remembering. And we're not doing anything more, that nothing else is happening, we're just remembering. And that is also not the view that we hold. And hopefully you've seen that worn out in the language that we use. You hear me talk about these ideas of visible word, of means of grace, of yes, looking back, but currently proclaiming and looking forward. So it's not just a memory. And an interesting scriptural tidbit here is it's interesting to think about. The Lord and his disciples took the Lord's Supper the night before he was crucified. They weren't remembering something because it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so it's just interesting to think about that. And we see the language of Scripture. It's not just a remembrance. It's, a, it's more than that. And that's the view that we hold. We would call it the real spiritual presence view. That when we come together to worship, right, the call to worship, we would look to places like Hebrews 12, where it says that, Believers, when they gather, are worshiping in the heavenly Mount Zion. That's sort of interesting to think about. It says, we haven't come to Sinai, but we have come to Zion. So our worship is being accepted in heaven. Or we can think about it the reverse. God is present with us, right? Where two or more are gathered, there I am. There is an ecclesiastical presence of God when we come to worship. That's why we do it. That's why we don't do Zoom church or, you know, one-on-one -on -one church. We come together to worship God because we believe he's going to be present. He's going to assure us of our salvation. He's going to do all these things, sanctify us, grow us, equip us. And so we call this a means of grace because just like the word is to encourage us and remind us of what Christ has done on the cross, the Lord's Supper is very similar. That God is present in it when we have faith. It's not this magical thing where 
if we just take it, or if an unbeliever takes it, something magical happens. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that when we partake by faith, we are communing with God. Right? Just like when we hear the word, by faith, it's communion with God. That's why some people call it communion. <laughs> We've sort of lost that whole language around this. But it is a communion with the risen Lord, by faith, by the Spirit. And so that's what we mean when we say means of grace. The Spirit has to be present. The Spirit works through means. And those means are the Word, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. That that's how the Lord works. That's how He grows and encourages His people. And so hopefully, as we've done this, you've seen that. That each week when we come, we hear the Gospel with our, with our ears, and then we see the Gospel through the Lord's Supper. It's a visible Word. It's showing God's covenant promises that as surely as we eat the bread and drink the cup by faith, Christ was shed for us. Christ's body was broken. It's just a means God has given us to be encouraged, to be assured. So hopefully that comes across. If you have more questions about that, we can talk about it after the service. No problem. So just a little bit more explanation than, than normal. So every week we come, we do this. It's a means of grace. We're looking back, we're currently proclaiming, and we're looking forward. And we're being spiritually nourished to our souls. And that's why we call it a means of grace. And so, like we say every week, we should examine ourselves. We should see whether we're in the faith. And if we don't believe, we shouldn't partake because it means nothing. <laughs> but if we're a believer, if we've been saved by the gospel, it's for us. It's a means of assurance. When we look at the supper, we remember that Christ did not spare his own life, but gave himself up for us. And that's why we come. So we come, as I said, confessing, but rejoicing. We come saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I am the wicked man of Psalm 1. But we come rejoicing that he's brought his Messiah. The blessed man has come and done what we could not. So the Lord, when he was betrayed, the night on which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That's not like the old. The old covenant was law. It said, do this and live. The, the new covenant says, it has been done. And that's what Christ inaugurated, was this new covenant in his blood. So that we might be found in him. And so when we drink the cup, we remember this. And he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So... Like we do every week, we'll come both confessing and rejoicing. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Supper. This ordinance that you've given us, this sacrament that you've given us, that is meant to encourage us. That no man invented this. <laughs> this is not my invention. This is your ordained means of encouraging and strengthening your people. And we thank you that even though it's ordinary, it's just bread, it's just wine, that through that ordinary means, you've given extraordinary, supernatural means of encouraging the souls of your people and nourishing them. So we pray this morning that 
Maybe we're downtrodden. Maybe we're distressed. Maybe we're weighed down by our sin. May we confess that this morning, knowing that you've made a way for us. And may we come rejoicing. We pray that you would set aside these common elements for your holy purposes and that by partaking by faith, we would be encouraged this morning. We thank you for this. We pray that you would bless it in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Come as you're able. So as we take the bread each week, we remember, but we also believe and trust that the Lord Jesus' body was broken for the forgiveness of all our sins. In the same way we take the wine, we not only take it, but we remember and we believe that Christ's perfect spotless blood was poured out to cover all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we will respond with singing Psalm 23, which can be found in the hymn number 319.
doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.